The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. And you'll, you'll see this from time to time. They're all in the back with an acoustic guitar worshiping themselves, just getting their hearts ready to be able to come up here and lead you guys. And it's a real blessing to have people that take worship of our Lord that seriously be a part of our church and to lead us. It really is. So, Sam and you guys, we really appreciate what you guys do for us here at Heritage. We really do. And it's good to have Sam back. They just had a baby. Congratulations. Yeah. Um, Sam and Mitch, all of our, our staff family is all three kids now. We're all even. So uh, I am not looking to win that race, Sam, just so you know. It is all you. Hey, a uh, couple of announcements. Uh, marriage com- and communication workshop is coming up this coming Friday night and Saturday morning. This is with Randy Young from Living Waters Counseling in Town. And Randy and uh, his team are going to be here to teach us some different just communication tools to help us, uh, um, to help marriages out. It's $20 for couples, $15 for singles. Um, hey, singles, by the way, we're not trying to jack the price on you. That's just the baseline because we have to pay copyright on materials that get printed out for the thing. So that's all. We're actually just giving deals to couples because they probably need it more than you at this point. So uh, um, anyway, so please make sure you sign up for that. We've already got a great turnout, great group of people signing up. We want to see all of you there. So sign up at the uh, communications desk or connect desk, excuse me, um, or on the website. Also, hey, single moms, there's a Mother's Day dinner for single moms on May 13th. Uh, from six to nine at the hub that's free. So if you are, or if you guys know um, some single moms that would love just to be blessed on Mother's Day, we'd love to be able to do that for them. So uh, um, space is limited though. You do need to sign up. Child care and dinner is provided. So that's a pretty cool deal. And then also um, high school missions trip. There's a question and answer opportunity coming up next Sunday. I think it's next Sunday. Yes. Next Sunday with Pastor Jeremy. If your kids are interested in going down to the mission in Mexico and and, uh, being part of that mission trip, uh, Jeremy will meet with all of you guys after service, after the second service next week in the coffee shop over there. So take a look at that. And then by the way, one more, I'm going to throw in here just for free. If you're looking to come with us in September to Greece, Rome, Turkey, Italy, we're going to go through and do the apostle Paul tour. Um, all, there's a whole bunch of you. that are like, we're going, we're going, we're going. You're not signing up yet though. We need you to do that so that we don't lose our spot on our trip. So, uh, make sure you guys are getting signed up and getting your deposits paid on that trip. Um, we would are really looking forward to being able to just study the word on location at the actual sites where these things took place. It's going to be amazing. Um, so this week for me has been quite a week. This is finals week for me. Um, so I just finished, I think I counted up something like 62 pages of papers that I submitted this week at school. It's been a, a really crazy week. And we are really blessed here at Heritage to have so many of the different teachers that we do. Um, one of them you've never heard here on Saturday mornings before. He does um, share some of the teaching responsibilities Wednesday nights on our Through the Old Testament series. And he is a really gifted teacher, not just here locally in our school system, but a gifted Bible teacher. So would you guys, this is my buddy, Jeremy Hamasu. Would you guys give him a warm welcome? Jeremy's going to share the word. Give me a second to get my eye papers ready. Sam was wondering, where do you swipe those things? It's good to be here with you guys. My name is Jeremy. And uh, every time I speak in front of a group, I always tell myself the same two words. I always tell myself, calm down. (laughs) Talk like a normal human being. 
Because I'll be honest with you, and, I, and I'm, not just, I'm not just talking church. I, my favorite thing to talk about is the Bible. It's the one thing I get excited about. It's the thing I get animated about. I get all worked up. And so I have to remind myself to calm down a little bit. So this morning, I'm going to try to talk to you and not talk at you too much. But if I get a little preachy, sometimes I can't help myself. <laughs> Would you get out your Bibles and turn to the book, uh, a familiar book, uh, the familiar book of Luke. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the guys here have some Bibles, they'll bring it to you. The book of Luke. And in this familiar book of Luke, it's a familiar chapter, chapter 15. And we're going to find ourselves in a familiar story of the prodigal son, as you may know it. But my prayer for us today is that we don't have familiar eyes, that we would look at this book like, and we would look at this story like it's the first time we read it, because sometimes we have a filter of years and years of teaching, and we get fixed in this way of thinking, but I want to challenge that a little bit today as we read through this story. Book of Luke, chapter 15, verse 11, and he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me, my inheritance. And he, the father, divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had took, or he gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose and hit that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Act 2. Now... His older brother, or the older son, was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, the servant, said to him, Your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry, and he refused to go in. And the father came in and treated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But th when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed him, or you killed the fatted calf, not him, excuse me. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, 
you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just come before you now, and even before we get into the Bible study, I just can't help but think of the many brothers and sisters we have in other parts of the world who are gathering together under threat of persecution and death, and yet we come into this air-conditioned building in a nice gym, in a school that accommodates for us. And Lord, we just ask that you would keep our brothers and sisters safe today. We also pray that you wouldn't allow us to be so comfortable in our faith. May we understand that the blessings that you have given us have not been given to us so that we can get lackadaisical, but they've been given to us so that we have every reason to focus our eyes on you and to pursue you. And as we learn, hopefully today, Father, I just pray that for those of who have come here and have been coming to church that we might see the gospel in maybe a slightly different facet. And for those of us who may not know the gospel, may this day give us a better understanding of it, but may we all learn to understand that the gospel, it, it, it changes us. And may we take our lives, and we, may, we understand that the, may we understand the implications that the gospel has on every different facet of our lives, and may we bring those into submission to you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, about a week ago, I finished a novel, uh, American author Jim Harrison. He wrote the book in 1979, and it became a uh, Hollywood movie, I don't know when. Uh, the book was called Legends of the Fall. And as I was reading this book, it was interesting to me. The story is of two, really three brothers, and it's clear from the beginning that they're a tight-knit unit. They're together. They find their identity in each other. They go places as a group. They find their security in the brotherhood that they have. And everything's great. They love each other. So much so that when the youngest brother, Samuel, decides to go off and fight in the Great War, World War I, the other two brothers decide to enlist as well to keep the younger brother safe. Yet even the watchful eye of the two older brothers aren't enough to keep Samuel from being hurt. He, uh, he goes out to the field, he gets caught in mustard gas, and he dies a grisly death. And from that point on, the book really chronicles the story of these two brothers who are fractured at the death of their younger brother, and they're trying to find their identity, they're trying to find who they are as individuals. The middle brother, Tristan, is like a wild, untamed stallion. The day his brother dies on the battlefield, he curses God and goes on to live a completely self-indulgent life. His only motivation is what's expedient for him at that moment. And he uses people, and he abuses people, and he manipulates people, and he does whatever it takes for him to get what he wants in that moment. So much so, well, he marries a girl knowing full well he doesn't love her, and she loves him. And only two years after being married, he decides he needs to go on a journey. He doesn't tell her much of anything. He takes off, leaves, abandons her, and is gone for five years. She doesn't hear anything from him. And after five years, all she gets is a little letter that says, marry another, our love is dead. And so she, lost, confused, 
takes and puts herself under the care of Tristan's older brother, Alfred, and he marries her to take care of her. But Tristan returns two years later, and he has an affair with his now brother's wife, his ex-wife, and he's reckless. He goes on to get married again. His bootlegging ways get his new wife killed. And at the end of the book, spoiler alert, uh, Tristan is just as unsatisfied, just as lost as the day his younger brother Samuel died. Then there's Alfred, the older brother. He takes a completely different route. Alfred does the things that you would want somebody to do. He stays in the military where Tristan got out of there before his enlistment was up. He stays in. He works hard. He becomes an officer. He's wounded in service to his country. He walks with the cane the rest of his life, but he's respected by all those around him. After his military service, he goes on into civic duty. He becomes a politician and eventually works his way up to the U.S. Senate. He's well admired, well respected. He loves his family. He even loves Tristan. He cares for his father. Even though he knows his wife loves his brother more than she loves him, he still does his best to accommodate her, to take care of her, to love her. He follows all of the rules, and he builds his identity on being a moral man. Yet, ironically, at the end of the book, Alfred is just as discontent as Tristan He's just as lost as the day Samuel died. And you know, in this book, Jim Harrison, the author, is really asking a valuable question for us. He's asking, is there any value in building your identity on morality as opposed to a selfish lifestyle? Let me say that one more time. Is there any value in building your identity on a moral lifestyle as opposed to a selfish one? And what Jim Harrison may not have known, and I hope he found because I just read he died a year ago, is that Jesus, 2,000 years earlier, answered this question perfectly in his story of two brothers, the story we just read. And the answer is no. There is no value in finding your identity on a moral lifestyle as opposed to a selfish one. No? Yeah. No. Did you see that story? Did you read it carefully? I hope you saw it. We've often called this story the story of the prodigal son. This is not the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of two sons. Two prodigal sons. The first son we make a lot of hoopla about, and, and we should. It's not like his part of the story isn't important. He's, for lack of a better word, he's an idiot. Okay, he goes to his father and he says, Father, I want my inheritance now. And anybody living in those days would know, would understand that to ask for, anybody living in these days would know and understand that to ask for your father's inheritance before he was dead is to essentially say, Dad, I wish you were dead. I'm no longer interested in the relational aspect of this union we have. I'm only interested in getting something out of it, getting what I want out of this relationship, and that's what you have. And he takes the money, and he goes and spends it, and the older brother gives us some insight into what he spent it on. He spent it on prostitutes. And when he finds himself dining with the pigs, he thinks, man, 
even the hired servants at my father's house eat better than I do. And a hired servant was not somebody that lived at the house. A hired servant would be someone that lived in town and came and worked kind of like a contractor for the dad. He's saying, maybe I can just go back and earn my way into my father's graces. But even as he makes his way back before he has a chance to make a pitch to his dad, his dad sees him, and Middle Eastern men in those days did not run, and he goes running toward his son, and he says, bring out the best robe, which would have been the father's robe, and bring out the ring, and slaughter the calf. We're celebrating my son was dead and is now alive. We're celebrating for him. Before he even has a chance to make his pitch at being a hired servant. And then there's the older brother. And this is the one I find particularly interesting today. Because the older brother comes to his dad, and did you hear what he said? Did you pay attention to what he said? He says, you're going to celebrate for him? I have kept all of the commandments. Uh, dad, I have done everything that you have asked of me to do. I've been a good person, but dad, you never threw me a party. You never gave me a calf so I could celebrate with my friends. And when I look carefully at what the older brother's saying, don't you see, it's two brothers. And both brothers just want what the father has, and neither of the brothers has any particular interest in the father at all. Two prodigals. One tries to get the father's stuff by being really, really, really bad. And the other tries to get the father's stuff by being really, really, really good. And Jesus sees this. And he tells the story. And he says, you can build your identity living a selfish life, or you can build your identity following all the rules, God's rules and man's, but don't you see that what you really need is the loving acceptance of a father. I, uh, I work at a middle school, and uh, th though I worked really hard to try to get my job, I, I don't think I had any idea what I was getting into. I'm, I'm a dean, one of the deans at a school here in town, and uh, I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, and uh, I found that as dean, you deal a lot with discipline and a lot with kids who are having a hard time, whether they're in trouble or whether they're just struggling inside, and if I could generalize here, I noticed several different types of kids. Uh, there's kids that come into my office, and, and they're the kids that... They're trying to find their place in this world, and they'll, they think that uh, they need to do whatever satisfies them at the moment, live a selfish life. They'll use people, they'll manipulate, they'll manipulate teachers, they'll get teachers going against each other and telling them different stories to try to stir up a, a whirlwind of confusion so that hopefully they can get out scot-free. They just do whatever's expedient at the moment for them, and they find themselves sometimes getting in trouble, and they think that if I can just satisfy my desires, whether how good or bad they might be, then I'll be okay, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll find my place. But then there's another group of kids, and they're the ones who go, 
oh my goodness, I'm struggling so much, Mr. Hamasu. I, 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 I have a B in this class and a C in that class, and I need to get good grades because if I don't get good grades, everybody's going to be upset with me. My teachers are going to be upset with me. Oh my goodness, and I don't want to go home and tell my family. And, and they think that if they can achieve, if they can do certain good things, if they can reach this level, if they can build their resume, then they'll be okay because people will accept them. But ironically... If I'm honest, and this is my opinion, what I think that most of, what, what I see as the biggest need for these kids that go to school is they need the unconditional loving acceptance of a father in their life. More than good grades, more than not getting in trouble, they need the acceptance of a father. And they don't even know it. Two brothers, one really bad, one really good. And Jesus' response to each of them is unconditional to the really, really bad one. He says, don't think there's any distance that you can run where you can outreach my loving, accepting arm. And to the really, really good one, he says, don't think that your moral living is going to have any bearing on my acceptance of you. Don't you see that my acceptance of you is completely divorced from your performance. Don't you see that how you live and what you do has nothing to do with, with, with my acceptance of you? And when I read this story, though it doesn't say for certain, I think only one of these brothers gets it. And it's not the older brother. It's the younger brother. Heritage, I come to you and I know that in a crowd like this, there's a handful of Tristans, there's a handful of younger brothers in the crowd. And I think the message for you today is this. I know that your life has been a trail of wreckage. I know that you've hurt people badly. I know that you've jumped into relationships and they've gone really good and then they have had a crash landing and people are wounded and broken because of your actions. I know you've probably put your family in different situations where they're forced to make a decision of whether to show you tough love or whether to show you kindness and possibly enable your bad behavior and it strain the relationships and I know that you feel guilty and I know that you feel broken and I know that you feel hurt and the only way you cope is by continuing to hurt other people and live a selfish lifestyle and I know that things have been difficult but let me tell you something there is no distance that you can run that you can outreach the loving accepting arm of our father and it's a very difficult thing when you view yourself so low to realize that a most high God still wants to bring you into his loving embrace, will you deny so great a gift? Will you deny? But I also know in a valley like this, in a town like this, in a church like this full of church people, that while there are some Tristans, there's a far greater propensity for there to be many, many Alfreds. Because one thing I've seen, and one thing you've seen, is, and especially in the church in the West, is, is church people want so badly to think that their moral performance has something to do with God's acceptance of them. 
And sometimes it works consciously, and sometimes it works unconsciously, but we often view our lives in a scale of a balance of good and bad. And we think to ourselves, well, maybe if I live a life and the scale tips in the favor of good as opposed to bad, well, if it tips in the favor of good, I've done a lot of good things, I've lived a good life, and God's a good God, and he's reasonable, and so he's going to accept me because why would a good, reasonable God not accept somebody who's lived a good life? And that's why we sit at funerals and we talk about people and we say, no, nobody ever see, says, oh, I don't think St. Peter's going to let him through. They all say, can't wait to see them in heaven, no matter what they believed. And it's because we think they lived a good life. There were some redeeming qualities there. And so God, God's going to let them in. But heritage, think with me. We often fail to think deeper. If you say, if you say that if I live a good life, God will accept me, there's a flip side to that coin. And the flip side is this. If you don't live a good life, if you don't do good things, then God won't accept me. You can't have one without the other. And so as you begin to peel back the layers of the onion and get to the root desire, I know you never thought this consciously, but you begin to see that the root desire for our good behavior is fear. We don't want to go to hell so we better do good things. And if you do manage to tip that scale in the favor of good, then sinks in pride because you say, I've completed my end of the bargain, and now, God, you owe me this. I've done my part. I've tipped the scale in favor of good. God, you, I, how dare you not let me in? And so you see that even our righteousness is full of selfishness. And this is the reason why one of my favorite pastors, Timothy Keller, says this. He says, if you think your good works are good works, they're no longer good works. Why? Because they're done in an effort to self-justify. And when C.S. Lewis heard this, he thought, man, this is why Christianity must be true, because who thinks of this? And this is why the Bible says even your righteousness is as filthy rags. And this is why my main heart for you here today, Harry, is this. It's not your sins I'm so worried about. It's your damnable good deeds. It's your damnable good deeds. So what do we need? So what do we got to do? I'll tell you what you need. You need a new record. You need a new resume. Because everything you've done has not been enough. And it's interesting to me th when I think, it's moving to me when I think that God came down and he lived a life completely un-younger brother-like, completely un-Tristan-like. He never used anybody. He never manipulated a situation to try to get ahead. He never, he never left anybody hanging. He never hurt anybody. He, never, he didn't do those things. He walked completely unselfishly. 
Yet in his unselfish walk that he walked, he never let it get to his head. He never got puffed up with pride. He never walked into church and tried to make sure his family looked all nice and happy because church people are supposed to be good moral people. And he never did things because he thought maybe that person will see me and I'll look pretty good. And he never tried to boost up his righteousness. His whole motivation was to listen to the Father, hear the Father, and do what the Father said. He just wanted to please the Father completely on Tristan-like and completely on Alfred-like like yet this God who lived that perfect life died a sinner's death and this is where the beauty of the doctrine of justification comes in because the doctrine of justification says two things first it says those Tristan and Alfred like tendencies that you have and you had those sinful things that you've done, your dirty righteousness and your dirty sins have been taken away from you, but they don't get rinsed down the sink and they don't get swept under the rug. A loving and perfect and just God has to deal with injustice, otherwise he is not just. So what he did is he took those sins from you and he pinned them to Jesus. And Jesus went to the cross and took those for you. But it wasn't only that. The doctrine of justification has two parts. It also says that the righteousness and rewards and honors, if you will, that Jesus earned by living a perfect life on Tristan-like, on Alfred-like, on younger, on older brother-like, those perfect honors that he earned by living a righteous life are now taken from him and brought to you and pinned to your chest. And now when you walk into the room, everybody stands, and now you have the honor. First Peter calls it being a co-heir with Christ. Hebrews says that you now have the ability to approach the throne of grace boldly, not because of what you have done, but because those honors and righteousness have been pinned to your chest, you have access to heaven. You have access to a God. You have access to a relationship with him. You can sit at the table of God. This is not the thing that people should raise your hand and close your eyes. And we don't want anybody to see you who is of the family of faith to come forward. We just want you to raise your hand and maybe receive. No, this is not that. This is the message that people would be clamoring over pews to get. If you hear, if you learn, if you understand that you have access to a most holy God and acceptance in his eyes, that's the thing that moves you trying to tell myself to calm down. <laughs> and what I find, a couple things happen. One, when I realize this, when I understand this, Tristan goes into remission. It's not that he's eradicated practically in my day-to-day -day life altogether, but he goes into remission. Because how can I sit at a table the most high God and continue to live for myself. Remember when you first fell in love with your spouse? You just, it was a natural manifestation of the love you had. You started washing dishes. You started giving shoulder rubs. You started, you know, you were just, you raised the level of your attention. And it wasn't because you thought, oh man, I have to do this. I bet 
It was a natural manifestation when you understand the great honor and glory that God has pinned to your chest. It manifests in Tristan rescinding into remission. But there's another thing that happens. Alfred goes into remission too. I have a, uh, a good friend, a best friend, and his name's Ben. And uh, side note, he's my next door neighbor. Uh, so we were best friends and he just decided to move into the house right next door to me. It's a five second walk from my house to his house and it's awesome. And your, my quality of life points have gone up by like 50%. So if you ever get a chance to live with your best friend next door, take it. But all that's to say is we're really tight. We do a lot of things together. And, and Ben's really, I always tell him he was made for the military. I'm, he looks, he's, not that he's like, walks around like this, but he's like the protector, you know. He's the first one to jump to attention when something's in need. He just has that intuition about him. Now I want you to imagine with me that Ben and I go to the bank. And as we walk into the bank, uh, we're in there maybe getting some money, whatever. And, and we're in that bank, and then just like that, somebody walks in with that dreaded ski mask and a gun waving in the air. And as we're in there, things start to get a little chaotic, and then people start to hear shots going off. And the second I hear those shots going off, I find the nearest exit, and I start running for the exit as fast as I can. And as I'm running for the exit, Ben assesses the situation, and he sees that that gun is going right towards me. And so as that gun's facing towards me, he runs, and he jumps in front of the path of the bullet that was heading straight for me, and he takes it right in the chest, and he dies there. And then as the cameras and the news crews show up at the bank and the microphone is put in my face, what would people say if when they asked me that question, how did you get to safety? And I said, well, it just so happens that this morning I laced on my Nikes. And so when I saw that ski mask coming in, I looked around and I saw that weapon pointed right towards me. And so I took off running and everything went into slow motion except for me. And I ran for that exit and I dove through the door and I rolled to freedom. It was a sight to see. Let me tell you something. What would Ben's wife say about me? How dare you? How dare you minimize the sacrifice that was made so that you could run to freedom, so that you could have life? How disrespectful. Christian, sinner, saint alike, don't you see that when you feel that your performance has something to do with your acceptance in God's eyes, you minimize the great sacrifice that was made for you. And when you realize that, Alfred has to go. Any good works are only a manifestation of the love and the great price that has been paid for you. I might live a life, a better life, after that sacrifice that was made for my life when Ben jumped in front of that bullet. But it's not because I'm self-righteous. It's because I realized that a great cost had been paid so that I can live. And how can I do anything but try to make this life count? Not because I'm righteous, but because of the sacrifice that was made for me. My friend Rousseau says this, fear can produce works, but only a loving and sacrificial God can produce a humble, loving servant. 
I'll close with this story and we'll let you go. A few years ago, actually it was more than a few years ago, it was, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now. I uh, joined up with a mission trip and we went down south to Mexico to do some work and I made my way, uh, we made our way all the way down to this little site that we were at and there was a guy there that was from Medford and he was one of my campers when I had counseled at a, a camp, a summer camp. And I didn't know he was down there and I said, hey buddy, how's it going? And he shocked me because he goes, oh, I'm not good. You know, you get so accustomed to people saying, oh yeah, I'm good, I'm good. I said, how's it going? He said, I'm not good. And I said, oh. And I said, uh, what's going on? And he said, I fear that I lost my salvation. I said, you think you lost it? And I was like, whoa, this is above me, my pay grade, you know. Is, <laughs> where's the pastor? And nobody was around. And, and I, I said, okay. Uh, I said, why do you think you lost your salvation? And he said, I blew it. And he said, there was a girl. And I said, okay. And, and he said, I, I, I knew I wasn't supposed to date her. I just knew I wasn't supposed to date her. But I, but I asked her out anyway. And I said, you dated a girl? <gasps> you know, no, I didn't say that. I just, I just said, okay. Um, and I said, did something happen? And he goes, no, I just knew I shouldn't have done it. And I was like, how long did you guys date for? And he said, I broke up with her the next day. And, and I was like, okay. And he said, I just fear that I lost my salvation because I knew I wasn't supposed to do this. And, and I said, did you talk to the, the people on staff here? Did you talk to the pastors? And they said, he said, yeah, I talked to the pastors and, and they told me I'm good. They told me I'm fine. They told me I'm okay. And I remember hearing that and being a little bit frustrated. I was a little upset. And to be completely honest, I don't remember who, was, who the pastor was, but I was really upset. And I looked at this kid and I said, listen, buddy, if when you do bad things, you feel like you've lost your salvation, what was your salvation built upon in the first place? I said, maybe you need to get saved. In other words, I was saying, if when you do bad things, you feel like you've lost it, your salvation's built on your performance, on your works, and that is not what the Bible teaches. And as I told him that, I looked in his eyes, and I could see it. The penny didn't drop. He had been in church his whole life, his whole life. He's probably about 18 years old. He had done Bible studies, been to summer camps, and all the rest. But it couldn't move from his head to his heart. He couldn't divorce a salvation built on anything other than his performance. Heritage, may we search our souls. May we see if there's any older brother-like tendencies in us. And may we realize that our acceptance is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made and the resurrection that he had. And may we glory in that because if left to us, we would lose our own salvation. But if left to him, we are in good hands. In Jesus' name. Father, I just pray, man, for those who don't understand the gospel, Lord, may, may they just receive it. May they submit their lives to you. But Father, for us here who have been in church for so many years, I still see Alfred in me all the time. Father, may you change our thinking and allow our 
thinking to change our hearts. And may we just learn and grow to be moved by you and the work you've done. Stop trying to perform. It's too heavy a burden to bear. May we know that your burden is light, your yoke is easy. And may we walk in these things in Jesus' name, amen.